Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Today we are joined by Della Z. Duncan, a renegade economist who supports individuals working to better align their values with their work as a right livelihood coach. She helps transition businesses and organizations to more sustainable, equitable, and democratic forms as a post-capitalist consultant. She hosts the Upstream Podcast, challenging mainstream economic thinking through documentaries and conversations, including, most recently, The Green Transition, Part 1, The Problem with Green Capitalism. And she teaches and facilitates retreats and workshops on systems change and economics all over the world. I am very happy to have Della here with us today because I've been meaning for some time now to begin to talk a little bit more seriously about money, economics, relationship between these things and our real everyday lives as well as our spiritual aspirations. So Della, thank you so much for joining us on Dangerous Wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to be here. Well, Della, you, you describe yourself as a renegade economist. I really like that because there's a, sometimes I think of myself as a renegade philosopher, but only in relationship to the way philosophy is done in the, in the academy. I would say that actually I'm not a renegade when I hope that Plato and Socrates and Buddha wouldn't think of me as a renegade. But if I, if, as a philosopher looking at our culture and looking at the results of our economic activity, both in relationship to the wisdom traditions and relationship to the ecologies we depend on, it would seem to me, as a philosopher, I would say, well, we really need a renegade economist, because whatever's going on here that they call economics is a problem. But how did you arrive at that? What, 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 is, what was your feeling where you thought, yeah, I'm not going to just be an economist? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so, and a few points of connection as well along the way. One of them is I was in the Bay Area and I was feeling that my heart was breaking due to inequality and houselessness and environmental degradation and destruction. And I heard this metaphor about going upstream. It's a metaphor from public health about looking at bodies floating down the river drowning and then eventually having to go upstream to figure out the root causes so I've been on a journey to figure out why our economic system is not providing us with happiness, health, and well-being, and absolutely not providing our ecological systems with happiness, health, and well-being. So it's that upstream journey that has led me to be a renegade economist. And that phrase, renegade economist, actually came from Kate Rayworth, who's the founder of Donut Economics. That was a term that someone used to describe her. And I was like, I love that term. So I'm going to use that as well. But I'll say by a way of connection to philosophy, one of the things that I do is I say, I am here to return economics to the realm of moral philosophy. And why I say that is because Adam Smith, who is seen as a forefather of economics, was actually a moral philosopher. And economics, when he created the discipline in the academia context, he 
he had economics in the Department of Moral Philosophy. So I think that one of the challenges of economics today is that it has become increasingly mathematized and scientific and uh, reduced to that which is quantifiable. And that's not to say there's not beauty and philosophy and art in the math and science of, of economics or in general, but that's just to say, I think there's very real assumptions around who we are as humans, our relationship with work and our relationship with the more than human world that go unexamined and uninterrogated in the mainstream field of economics. So for me to be a renegade economist is partially to return economics to the realm of moral philosophy. Mm, amen. Although I would say as a, as a philosopher, that is, it's just returning it to philosophy in general, for the for, for various reasons. But actually, we were just talking about this a little bit before, and people listening might know that I very often refer approvingly to Thoreau's line about there being nowadays professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. I think Smith counts in that uh, group of professors. He professed a lot of things, but wasn't necessarily in line with the practicing, and certainly even this de departmentalization historically, a philosophy as a way of life is a holistic thing in which ethics is the beginning. It is the first step that you have to get clear. But as Schumacher and others pointed out, and you're, you're implying in your comments, and I love it so much, that there's, uh, there, the economists are metaphysicians. There are metaphysical assumptions about the nature of a human being and the nature of reality that are in pervasive, of course, in the dominant culture. Our science has it and so on and so on. But that's really wonderful. Bring back the wisdom, the wisdom, the love, and the beauty. That's what uh, philosophy is, wisdom, love, and beauty. That's marvelous. Okay, so then you realize that. Did you already have uh, some training in economics or uh, how at that point when you were thinking about, okay, I need to go upstream and return this or what was the trajectory educationally? Yeah. In my undergraduate degree, I had a very mainstream economics class experience, and that was nothing new or exciting there. However, I did receive one class that was economics or it was economic anthropology. And so you can imagine that was likely different. And it was. That was where we learned about alternative economic models, such as gift economy models, such as the Kula ring or the potlatch ceremony. And we also were introduced to Helena Norberg Hodge's work, and we watched Ancient Futures Lessons from Ladakh. So I think there, there were a few seeds of thinking about economics differently that I was in touch with. And when I started on the journey upstream, I think I reconnected with that. And also what really kicked me into economics and alternative economics was that I connected with mindfulness first, a, a Nick mindfulness, a very much self-focused mindfulness. But then I met Joanna Macy, an eco-justice Buddhist philosopher and activist here in the Bay, who kicked me off the cushion into engaged activism. And so from there, that led me to Buddhist economics. And Buddhist economics is what led me to E.F. Schumacher. And then E.F. Schumacher is what led me to Schumacher College in Dartington, England. And it was there that I underwent a year of deep training and education and reflection 
into an economics for transition or regenerative economics, Buddhist economics, post-capitalist economics. So that is where I really learned about the discipline of alternative economics, about being a renegade economist. Yeah, wow. So I really recommend, heartily, heartily recommend people consider reading E.F. Schumacher's uh, kind of classic text, um, Small is Beautiful. And there he, it's a, an essay he wrote called Buddhist Economics that Dell is referring to. It's really delightful and poses the, the contradictions of capitalism in a much better way. It's the thing I've always bo- was bothered by Marx, that he wasn't really understanding or wanting to accept that he was, Marx himself was also a philosopher and that uh, the contradictions in capitalism are contradictions also between capitalism and just wisdom. It's not just these internal contradictions of a crazy system, but that there, and that's one of the things that Schumacher does in that essay, is he shows how the way we do things, and it doesn't matter what your orientation, socialist, capitalist, it doesn't matter. Can we be honest about the, the tensions, the contradictions between what wisdom demands of us and love and beauty and what the economic practices insist on? Yeah. So you studied that uh, at Schumacher, and maybe could we could we talk about your experience or anything that you remember from that book that you maybe we could talk about, and it could it, we could start there. We can anything that you that stood out for you in in his work that might be, still be inspiring or something like a torch you carry. Yeah. Well, one way to describe that book and his experience is, from my understanding, he was a traditional or mainstream development economist. And he had this experience of being sent sent to Burma to kind of help with classic development. And I believe this is where he had kind of an awakening, where he really said, hey, my tools of development are not useful here because of what was valuable and what was important to people there in Burma. And for example, he tells the story of being surprised that people were finding happiness with less and less instead of having more and more. So for me, the the invitation there was to really rethink what is development? What is progress? And to consider something in, in a post-growth or post-profit realm a more holistic view of human development and human progress, and also redefining what is true wealth. A friend of mine, Leanne Fa, she says, the sign of a healthy economy should be a drinkable river. You know, so what are our metrics? What are our indicators of success, of health, and of happiness? So for me, E.F. Schumacher and that book was an invitation to rethink all of these words and ideas that are really held as ultimate truth with a capital T in mainstream economics. Yes, I, I'm glad that you emphasized his, his conventional training because he was trained at Oxford and, and really, you know, worked with the government, the coal board. Uh, this is like a, a real <laughs> economist. This is not some pie-in-the-sky thinker, very serious thinker who had to have an awakening. You could say, like, as one philosopher put it, being awakened from our dogmatic slumber, um, that's Kant. I don't like Kant, but you know, I'm glad that he tried to be awakened from his dogmatic slumber. But um, it's really so powerful that he was able to see this because he describes it. It's interesting that you mentioned earlier how 
economics has tried to become scientific and mathematical, and there's this emphasis on a narrow view of rationality. And he points out this irony that the Buddhist approach is so much more rational because it says, how can we perfect human virtue and human experience? And how can we maximize that experience with minimal inputs, which is the most rational thing that you would do? But that the system is exactly backwards because the Buddhist system says, well, then we have to focus on, on perfecting the art of consumption. And the conventional economics is trying to perfect the uh, process of production, the exact opposite. And you might think, oh, well, if you perfect consumption, that means you'll consume more and more. No, if not, if you, if you want to perfect it, you want to enjoy every bite, every blissful bite of experience and not have to get, go out and get more stuff. And so he describes how this is, and whereas if you want to perfect production, you will come up with ideas like engineered obsolescence and producing more garbage and having Walmart and having China make all of our garbage. So th this uh, is such a marvelous uh, contrast. And uh, so then you 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 carried that into trying to figure out maybe something like, especially because you're a right livelihood coach, and he actually talks about well, that's how you know Buddhists have an economics because livelihood is like central to their whole path of life. And so, what does that what does that look like when you try to shift someone's livelihood in the midst of that that sort of weird system? Yeah, well, I definitely feel like we're in a time of paradox and so it is challenging for one to have light, right livelihood or practice right livelihood in our current economic system and that is usually the main tension that people come to me with they say they say hey i know i need to meet a lot of my needs in financialized ways and yet another one of my deep needs is contribution to society and living in alignment with my values. And I'm feeling that those two needs are in direct opposition. My need to meet my needs and my need to contribute to society. And in fact, so many folks feel that when they go to work every day, they're actually contributing to harm, human or planetary ecological harm. And so that tension is so difficult for us to hold as humans, and it can feel very rare for us to find, wow, okay, I'm, I'm making my ends meet, and I'm feeling like I'm living in alignment with my values and contributing where I want to contribute. So usually when I work with folks, we look at what are the acupuncture points for them to create more alignment. And first, I definitely see this as more of a verb-like way of living, more like it's balancing or aligning rather than finding balance or alignment, as in it's like a static state one will achieve. Instead, right livelihood is a path, it's a process, it's a way of being, of continually aligning or continually balancing. And so I think that's part of it. But the other is sometimes folks say, I'm in this extractive or exploitative space. What do I do? And sometimes I work with them on how do we transform your ways of seeing your work, your ways of relating with your colleagues or the structures of that business or organization so that they are more equitable, just and regenerative. Others say, I'm leaving and I'm creating something new. Okay, well, what are those structures that are more in alignment with earth ethics and, and human compassion and connection. And then there's other folks who say, what I want to do doesn't make money, but I really want to do it. I'm really called to do it. 
So then we work on what are the ways that you could contribute to society that may complement the other activism or volunteer work that you want to do that are not that is not extractive or exploitive. So how can you have a right livelihood garden where there's many plants in the garden and some of them generate financial fruit and some of them generate other types of fruit like connection or teamwork or learning continuously and how can that overall garden be holistic and beneficial to both you and to your communities and to the planet so those are some ways that i help folks think through this right livelihood question Mm -hmm. yeah it's really important to uh, try to shift our thinking away from these abstractions that uh, we don't see as processes and so there is just even something in the uh, dominant culture languages, most of them, the Indo-European languages, where there's a lot of nouns and not as many verbs, and then there is this kind of reifying of things. I think it's one of the, also another profound thing about Marx's work is he at least uh, gets us to see that we live abstractions that the capitalist uh, uh, system constitutes or constructs for us. And we are not living life anymore, we're living these abstractions. Uh, whereas once upon a time, uh, you depended on the river, for instance, and everyone did things that actively kept it clean. Uh, now to have this new weight, we, we have to realize that we don't know how to do that. And that a lot of our activity on a daily basis is so disconnected from the actual river we need and uh, keeping it in good shape that uh, it's a kind of horrifying tragedy in the soul. I mean, there's something there too, even what you're talking about. Where I often think how, how many ways the example of Semmelweis uh, matters for us. But Semmelweis was, was a man who, before we had a germ theory of disease, was uh, just trying to solve the problem that there were so, many, so much uh, infant mortality and, and mother mortality. So mothers and babies were dying in birth at a just much higher rate. Um, than all the midwives were experiencing in the same area. So there were still many more midwives in the uh, 19th century. And um, and it, this was, you know, the most advanced teaching hospital in the area. And then he started to think, well, maybe, uh, you know, we're a teaching hospital. We've, we're doing all these dissections, and you know, people will go from dissecting a cadaver to delivering a baby, and maybe it's not a very good thing. <laughs> you know, we now think, yes, you know, even indigenous societies with no sense of of the germ theory of disease had a sense of purification. So uh, the thing is that he demonstrated that if you cleaned your hands, that the uh, mortality rate would improve dramatically. You would save a lot of mothers and babies. N- people didn't want to believe him. Now, there were a couple reasons. One is that they didn't have a theory. And it shows that concepts are not useless. If, if we don't understand why something works, sometimes it really bugs us. But then the other thing is that who wants to admit that they're killing babies and mothers? I mean, that's just an inherently uncomfortable thing. You'd be told you're doing it, and it's because you're dirty. And <laughs> so there's, I, I, I'm just thinking about this in relationship to a person who is either seeking right livelihood or doesn't even know how to seek it, but they're experiencing maybe this burden in the soul of my actual activity just to get along might be degrading and causing problems. And I don't want to hear that. But at least some people are coming to you and saying, well, how could I clean up my life, so to speak, clean up my livelihood? That's marvelous. How do you see, from your perspective, the uh, 
I mean, maybe we can circle back to that and talk a little bit more of the details. I, I want to just ask it, if you would be willing to give a general diagnosis, though, first of, you know, here we are, we've got every, I think a lot of people are thinking about economics because of inflate, this threat of a recession. We have inflation, high inflation. Maybe we're going to see a recession. What is your diagnosis of our current situation right now, as everyone has all this economic anxiety? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm definitely seeing, I mean, as many folks have known for a while, the limits to growth, right? The limits to growth and development and their impact on our planetary boundaries, which are interconnected, right? And I'm not just speaking of carbon, I'm thinking more in the holistic frame of the nine planetary boundaries from the Stockholm Resilience Center, Things like ocean acidification, biodiversity lost, aerosol loading, nitro- nitrogen and phosphorus in the atmosphere. So when we look at the impact on our planet, our economic systems are really impacting our planet and, and we're way beyond the carrying capacity, so to speak. And yet I also see that <clears throat> it's not just the individual choices that we make or even that's unhelpful to put this all on the individuals like as you were speaking and you were talking about folks feeling this weight of their contribution um i really love to invite us to think systemically as to like the the systems and the the operating principles and the the corporations as well and their impact on the planet too so that we can do our activism and our systems change in widening circles, so to speak. So at this time of very real economic, or sorry, yeah, economic impact on the planet, um, and then also this really deep feeling of precariousness. I think a lot of folks feel that their their wages or their their work is very precarious, particularly right now during this you know time of pandemic, where a lot of folks had so much disrupted in their lives. There's a lot of sense of precariousness and and difficulty. And one way to see this time is, you know, as uh, Naomi Klein says, we can see disaster capitalism, where after disasters or uh, recession or climate catastrophe, we, it can turn into profits for elite. And there have been so many profits to people like oil companies, for example, even with inflation and these uh, rising oil prices, oil executives have benefited hugely financially. So we have examples of disaster capitalism. And yet at the same time, I'm also heartened by what Rebecca Solna describes as disaster collectivism, which is that turning towards one another and the examples of mutual aid and solidarity and support. And so I just read an article today, Hadass Tier, she she wrote an article about the left's response to inflation. And I was really heartened by the article because it just showed like, it's, you know, what stories are we seeing? What stories are we telling ourselves? And then what is the way we want to respond? And with something in our own life, we can see it as something horribly detrimental that takes us out, or we can see what's happening as an opportunity. So I'm just trying to see the opportunity in right now. What are the ways we can turn towards one another, that we can collaborate, um, that we can be even more you know, grounded in mutual aid and love and compassion and support of one another. 
So I'm, I'm just trying myself to uplift that in my day-to-day life and my actions and also in the systems change initiatives that I'm working on um, and just trying to water that in communities or people that I'm around, if that makes sense. So again, it's that paradox that I'm talking about of this idea of things are getting better and better and worse and worse, faster and faster. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate this emphasis. It's, it's not easy for us to understand what systems thinking is. Sometimes uh, it seems to me as a philosopher that a, a great deal of talk under the rubric of systems thinking is ultimately, even if people are resistant, it is talk about systems. Uh, and so we are thinking about systems and trying to think in terms of systems, but we do not know how to be the vital thinking of systems because the culture doesn't have those practices. But it's really essential for people to begin to understand that their difficulties are a result of systemic processes. And so it's we do uh, individualize. Of course, there are there's a reason why we want to try to take care of what we have under our control, loosely speaking. But then there we, we see uh, I have cancer. Okay, I don't have cancer, but I just mean if a person is diagnosed with cancer, it is I have cancer rather than I live in a system that reliably produces cancers in people's bodies, reliably produces anxiety, loneliness, depression. It it, it knows how to do this. And we uh, can get confused then about where the problem is because it's I have anxiety disorder. No, you're in a culture that knows how to produce anxiety really reliably in a good number of people. And how can we begin then to to work on both at the same time? Okay, you have to learn how to work with your mind because you've got the anxieties in you. And then we have to simultaneously, as you were pointing to, because Joanna Macy comes from that tradition, which is Thich Nhat Hans, the great pioneer of uh, so-called engaged Buddhism. Yeah. That's really wonderful. And what do you see as the causes? I mean, we've sort of hinted, would you diagnose, say, this the inflation, if you were thinking about how to offer uh, an economic diagnosis, which, uh, you know, clearly we're, we're, we're accepting philosophy as part of that, but how would you say, you know, there are different reasons that people would have or would different things that people want to talk about to explain, here's why we have inflation and here's why it might be leading to a recession. Do you have a, a sense of how you diagnose this? Well, this is this is why. Yeah. Well, we, um, and I say we, um, on the Upstream podcast, we, we interviewed some economists about this topic. Richard Wolf was one of them. And his view, which I thought was so interesting, was inflation is the capitalists deciding to raise prices for their own corporate benefit. Sure. Uh-huh. So largely workers are not seeing huge increases in their wages. That's not what we're seeing. It's really gains to the 1%. And so when I when I go upstream so to speak from the challenges of our time whether that's inflation or inequality or ecological devastation, the first thing that I see is uh domination over or supremacy paradigm. So whether it's white supremacy or capitalism, which is capital supremacy over the rest of us, or human supremacy over nature, patriarchal supremacy, etc. So that's the first step up this upstream. Then going upstream from that, it's separation. So separation ourselves from our, our wisdom, our internal wisdom, our souls, 
separation from one another. So alienation, hatred, right? And then separation from the more than human world or the web of life, right? And so that's to me the highest uh, upstream view is this sense of self and what is our sense of self and who is in our sphere of care, so to speak. And then if we go to solutions or further invitations for a more regenerative, just economic system, then we would go back down from there. And it it wouldn't be instead of separation, reconnection, because I believe it's something that we've never actually disconnected from, that it's more remembering. Like we have to remember who we are. And this is like your point around wisdom. So remember who we are, remember who we are in relation to the web of life and remember who we are in relation to one another. So I love what you just said about, I am not a person with cancer. I'm a person who's in a system that creates cancer causing chemicals all the time in our bodies, right? That widened sense of self, so to speak. And then from that remembering, I think comes power with. So solidarity, collaboration, mutual aid, um, and a sense of power with in our internal one-on-one dynamics in our own lives and also in our systems. So for me, those are kind of what I see as the root causes. And I'd love your perspective or thoughts on those. Well, that's a marvelous philosophical diagnosis. And, and it, it absolutely, uh, I, I would cooperate it. I would put it just to, to maybe expand it by putting it in different terms. The first is a conquest consciousness. And conquest consciousness doesn't care what it oppresses, it just has to oppress something. So even when we talk, that's why sometimes I think it's important in our context to be careful that we don't put a label on something when when the, when the what should be there is just the word ignorance. So that if we, when, that's sometimes I think what goes wrong and creates defensiveness. Okay, patriarchy, psh, an accident. Conquest consciousness doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't care who it oppresses. If it's women, great. I don't, it just has to do something. And the name for that isn't really patriarchy, it's ignorance. And then we also, that brings us together because we say, well, I'm ignorant too. It uh, doesn't mean I'm not, I don't want to stop what you're doing. Okay, yeah, that's got to stop. That's no good. But let's recognize that we're in the same place and that through our ignorance, we have established this conquest orientation. And then, yes, uh, the next level up is this uh, these questions about, well, well, what is the nature of the self and how did we get this? Uh, you're right. We, we can't be disconnected from reality. We are reality. And yet somehow we have been uh, seduced into living in abstractions. They keep us at a distance from ourselves, from what the soul hungers for. We then start to mishear what the soul asks for. So the I always say, the soul says, take the inward journey. And uh, we get on a plane for Patagonia because we're going to go do something. And of course, that degrades ecologies. We can't do it. So the whole self-help industrial complex has us mishearing the soul all the time. We don't want to take the inward journey. We don't want to take the leap of faith. We go skydiving instead. So <laughs> leap of faith we need. And uh, so then further up, you're right, there are these fundamental divisions. I mean, I love how in, in the Dalai Lama's book, A Call for Revolution, he's got this line in here, in there where he says, well, I really resonate with the French Revolution and their call for brotherhood and equality, you know, that kinship that you're talking about, right? And liberty, of course, liberation. And he said, you know, I really see my whole life's work as about trying to correct this false separation between humans and the rest of the cosmos. He says humans and nature, but he has a very cosmic view. It's one of the things I like about him so much. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. This whole, all everything you said, I think the wisdom traditions would ve- just very robustly applaud and, and say amen. And, you know, that's, that's wonderful. 
I also do like the to, to the way Richard Wolff uh, is asking us to think about how the system uh, operates, so that we kind of start to see its moves for what they are, because it can help us then to understand that upstream why we need to go upstream. Because we say, well, this is uh, baloney. They're trying to they're using the excuse of inflation supply chain disruption just because they want to make more money because that's what conquest does it tries to get more it will rationalize it in whatever way it can so it is such a good example that the system is in and also the justice issues you were talking about i love that because what 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 is happening if you give if if bezos and musk make you know and, and a handful of other people make trillions during the pandemic no problem Stock market's doing great. Everybody's doing great. You start handing money to the people, and it's a fraction of of, of what the, the the wealthiest have, and suddenly the system falls apart. It kind of suggests that maybe the system doesn't want people to have <laughs> any kind of wealth. So it's a, such a weird thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I really want to also bring up, because I think you'd appreciate it, you likely already know it, but I also think about the root of economy and ecology and oikos, nomos, Greek, meaning management of our home, meaning the management of our, you know, first domestic home, the nation state, and now we'd say our planetary home. And yet Satish Kumar, the founder of Schumacher College, he once walked into the London School of Economics and he said, how can you call yourself a school of economics without a department of ecology? Because he said, ecology, oikos, logos, is the knowing of our home. And I love that we met through permaculture, and that's very much this practice or study of knowing our home. So I think economics, too, if I were to go upstream from that discipline, has become separated or divorced from ecology. So knowing our home before we can seek to manage it, and also managing it with this conquest mindset that you're speaking of. And then just to bring in one more that I love from deep ecology, the concept of ecosophy, eco-sophia or oikosophia, so wisdom of our home. And so just bringing that in too, that like to know our home, we also need to tap into or learn from the wisdom of our home. And of course, the wisdom of ourselves and of the whole cosmos. But just wanted to connect all those threads too, as we are both, you know, in that philosophy space right now. Yeah, I really love and appreciate that because that is the idea of the wisdom traditions. The path, the spiritual path, is to be at home, to actually be able to be at home, so to speak, in our own skin, which means we accept ourselves without confining ourselves to that skin, and at home in the ecologies that depend on us and that we depend on, and at home in the cosmos, to have that feeling that the thing is home. And that's much harder to realize, it turns out. It's why (laughs) the path of love wisdom can be like a razor's edge, and it's difficult to walk, as the Upanishads say. Uh, Yeah, that's wonderful. So then you, in part, are inviting people. Here it is. You're an economist, and we do such similar work then, because when you are inviting people to think about right livelihood and post-capitalist structures, which... Uh, again, I, 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 just as a parenthetical, everyone at home, if you happen to be a fan of capitalism, you might have the idea that the only alternative is Stalin. And I'm, what I am trying to suggest is that the wisdom traditions would say both of those ideas. You have this idea like your mind is sane and you're choosing between two economic systems and then you'll decide which one is okay. And the wisdom traditions are saying, no, both of those ideas come out of ignorance 
And a crazy person shouldn't be choosing either one of those, let alone anything else. So let's slow down <laughs> and think of alternatives. So that's what I would say uh, if you hear post-capitalism and as well, could we be wiser? Could we just find a wiser system? And instead of saying, well, this is the best one we have, that's just giving up. But anyway, what I'm trying to get at is in your work with Right Livelihood and post-capitalism, you are inviting people into the path of wisdom. I mean, you even were talking about remembering, and that is sati, of course. That is essential to Buddha and also Socrates, because there's that wonderful dialogue, for instance, where he gets the, unfortunately, it's a slave, but uh, is a kind of uneducated person, and Socrates guides him through doing a, a, a geometric proof simply by asking questions. And and his try what he claims is he says you see that knowledge is in that person they actually we have all the wisdom is in us and all we have to do is remember who we are and Buddha kind of has the same thing you have to remember this moment so well how does that feel do you ever think of it that way or do you think well I'm just doing economics or but you have so much spiritual exposure how does it feel for you it absolutely feels that way. Sometimes I'll start a presentation or a talk writing on the board, this is not the truth with a capital T. Um, and I really do feel that I, I love to frame all that I do as invitation, an invitation for folks to explore it in their own lives. And I think that's very Buddhist, that kind of making sense of it and trying it on and seeing if it makes sense to one's own being and thinking, but also because I'm trying not to be proselytizing or that I know the truth and I'm enforcing it on anyone else. And I do appreciate that you've pointed out that I, I particularly use post-capitalist and not anti-capitalist because I, I do see us as, or I enjoy taking the elements, the operating principles, so to speak, of capitalism and asking what might be a more wise way to work with this, right? Ownership of land. Let's explore that. Our relationship with work, let's explore that. The profit motive, let's explore that, right? Relationship with money. So that's why I say post-profit, it's like an evolution from or a next system, so to speak. But yes, I, I absolutely um, enjoy that holding the truth with a capital T lightly and really exploring what are the paradigms I'm even swimming in and investigating them with others. So I don't know if that's related to what you're saying, but that's what comes to mind for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Can you, I don't know if there's a, a, an example of a, a success story that you can share either anonymized or in part in some way that is, uh, or, or maybe even just a neutral example of uh, helping someone to think in a post-capitalist way. With, is, just to, if there's any way for us to make it feel a little more concrete to people. Yeah. One way to do that um, is this view that comes from two feminist authors, Gibbs and Graham, they say that we actually perform diverse economies. And so they say that capitalism is only one system that we contribute or participate in. So asking the listeners directly, I would say, when do you participate in capitalism? And it may be when you go into a for-profit business and you participate in capitalism in that way. But then they would say, Gibson Graham, what are all the other alternative economies that you participate in? 
So if you share something with your neighbor, that's the sharing economy. If you care for a child, that's the caring economy. Or an elderly person, that's the care economy. And so we have gift economy, the sharing economy. If you go into a worker cooperative, like here in the Bay Area, we have Arismendi Bakery, a worker cooperative uh, pizza place, delicious food. That's a worker cooperative. That's the solidarity economy. So you see how actually when we start to recognize there's all these other economic systems and we're participating in them all the time, then it takes some of the weight or the pressure off of like this capitalism as this all pervasive, you know, the only system that exists. And it's asked us, what are the ways that we can participate more in these alternative economic systems and uplift them out of the global sea of capitalism and connect them? So when I, when I offer that frame to folks, people feel like, oh, capitalism isn't so all pervasive and, you know, so dominant. And there's actually many alternatives that already exist. And it helps us um, when we start to see the alternatives, it brings them more into form by our noticing of them and participating in them. So then, as you beautifully said, the economy is not a system that we're talking about. It's not something outside of us or abstract, right? It's something we are embodying, we are participating, and we are co-creating. So what alternative offerings or invitations do we have available to us even today in our lives? And that is empowering for folks to realize and to recognize. Mm, right, okay. So then you start to find little spaces of freedom or uh, I sometimes think of spaces of, and creating sanctuary, spaces of sanity, spaces of relative peace and a different way of relating. Yeah, yeah, that's really, that's so interesting to think about. And so what, what do you think the prospects are, though, for... How do you functionally expand these economic alternatives? I mean, for, so for instance, if we, uh, one might think that um, it's going to become, say, for instance, increasingly necessary to have alternative currencies. Do you, do you, do you think that's, that's true? Or given the way that capital uses money um, and that participation with conventional currencies is somehow directly or indirectly, it might be very indirectly, but very much uh, in, in accord with then uh, strengthening the system, how... What's the transition look like? I mean, is it just that we start, the more alternative things we do, it just will kind of gradually weaken that larger structure and, and then we'll rise above it? Or will we have to have these sorts of innovations where a bunch of people get together and say, well, that's it, our town has its own currency and we're... Oh, great questions. Um, let, me, let me maybe separate those two questions, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that you asked was, you know, well, how, how do these economic ideas kind of spread, right? These alternative economic systems. And I did have a vision once I was doing like a visualization where these alternative models, let's say a land trust, a worker cooperative, a public bank, you know, that these spaces, a worker self-directed nonprofit were just so much more 
democratic and just and sustainable and regenerative that the old models simply fell away and more folks felt drawn to these new models and because they're a win-win-win, right? We know that from the epidemiologists Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson that a more equal society is better for everyone, even the richest among us, that health indicators and well-being and mental health and spiritual health indicators, everyone is more is better off in a more equal society. So this kind of falling away of the old system and a, and a drawing towards this new system that is more equal and more regenerative. So there's that. That's the one way of seeing this and one way I'm seeing this come into being. Um, currency finance. This is a whole area and a big one and an important one. One frame or phrase that I want to uplift that I think you'd appreciate is this view that money is commodified grief. Money is commodified grief. And I love that frame because what it does is it talks about the historical element of money. You know, where did it come from? And it really brings in, you know, the the harm and the trauma that is embedded in so much wealth right now, whether that was slavery or land theft or ex- exploitation or extraction of, of natural resources of, of ecology. So that frame is really interesting to me to play with. Money is commodified wealth. And I think there is something, there is how money is created, which is problematic, right? That it's a debt, that we have a debt-based currency. Um, So people are just regularly indebted and we have so much of our money is we are borrowing that money and we have to pay interest on it, meaning that it is growth addicted, so to speak. We have to continue to keep growing to pay off these debts. So that is inherently problematic in itself. And also that we expect when we have money, if we invest it, that it will grow, right? That idea. So all of that needs to be rethought and one one way that I love to think about this is what should one invest in right now? One should invest in community, right? So to take our money out of those extractive and exploitative stock markets and instead put them into community, into connection, into mutual aid, that is what will resource us when we're in times of trouble. So there's that. There's also really beautiful innovations in money creation, such as negative interest, Right, having negative interest in um, in currency, and as folks probably know, Jesus, but also in Islamic banking, they saw usury as a sin. So that's one kind of way to rethink money. That's one. Another is to localize our currencies, so complementary currencies. So what if we had currencies that could only be used in local and independent places, so they keep money circulating in a bioregion? That's a beautiful offering. So instead of somewhere like a Starbucks where money would leave the community and go to Starbucks HQ, the money would circulate locally. So that's another beautiful money creation. Um, But yeah, so there's all these different... um, offerings and invitations in terms of money and finance that I think at the root of it get us to really rethink what is money, what's the purpose, and how is it created, who controls it, is it democratic, is it transparent, um, does it have to grow, right? So I think all of these questions, it's it's beautiful and fun to interrogate them. And fortunately, there's a lot of people all over the world who are coming up with systems designs to address some of these core issues. Yeah, I think uh, one of the reasons why I was linking those 
is just this general sense of I'm trying to imagine situations in which a person, if you try to make it seems just so much more appealing to shift into something that would be considered post-capitalist, somehow wiser, somehow more compassionate and intelligent and creative and graceful, uh, aren't there going to be these times when a person says, well, but I can't quite make the shift, you see, because I have so many needs that I have to use the old system for, you know, that I have to, I, I, I have to buy food, I have to buy medicine. And um, so it's that hitching place of, well, won't there have to be some kind of significant innovation? And you're gesturing toward people maybe working on this, although, I mean, who, who knows what, what uh, are, are we clever enough to come up with a system where I think I'm just maybe even asking that question, you know, do we have to, is it just this mystery where we won't know what to do? And a group, certain group of people are going to have to say, well, we will have to solve this problem, and why don't we try it this way? It's interesting, too, when you talk about the, the, um, the origins of money, it's interesting that, that money as we think of it today as these, you know, coins or pieces of paper um, th- that, you know, people were uh, really assigning this a- sense of abstract value to, that that does come out of uh, violence so that you see it like, um, you see coins appearing more frequently where, where there are soldiers. Because then, then, you know, the Roman Empire doesn't have to, you know, ship salt somewhere. They just say, look, now that we've conquered you, we've got these, these coins. And if our soldiers want salt, you, you know, you take the coins and give them the salt and then we'll work all the rest of it out. So that there is this kind of bloody karma <laughs> with money. And that even before that, what I, one of the things that I think is so interesting is that we so often have this story that, well, you know, if you didn't have money, you'd have to go around trading everything. And that anthropologically, that doesn't seem to be that that's what happened, is that really, it it was debt, but it was long-term relational debt, right? It was that, you know, I come by your house and I say, oh, wow, that's a really nice fig tree there, Della. And then you say, you want some figs, Nikos? That sounds great. And I take some figs. Okay, but now I owe you. I haven't paid you anything. I haven't offered to trade anything. I might not have anything. But then, you know, six months later, Della stops my house and says, Nikos, that's a really nice saw you got there. I'm doing some carpentry work at my place. You mind if I, uh, hey, go ahead, take it. And that everything was done this way. And that money entered in only in, in those economies. Money entered in when there was some act of violence where you had to say, well, okay, you killed his brother. That's worth 30 goats, man. You know, <laughs> we have to figure that out. And that's, that's 30 pieces of silver if you've got that. And it's, it's a weird karma. Do you, are, are you familiar with some of that work? Yes, absolutely. And, and I'll just share it in, in, this, in a story form as well, like you're saying. Um, so I knew someone who lived next to a little girl who came over one day and said, can I borrow some eggs? And the little girl and the, the man said, sure, here's some eggs. And the little girl tried to pay him for the eggs. And he said, no, 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 please, no. She goes home and she comes back a few hours later with a big slice of chocolate cake and a grin. And so they started, my friend and this little girl, an arms race of gift giving and just mutual indebtedness, like you're saying. And in that moment, had he accepted the money, it would have ended the relationship. It would have been a clean break. The the eggs would be worth this amount and they'd be done. But because he didn't, they engaged in this mutual gift giving. So I love that, that, that um, indebtedness that you're speaking about. That's a positive thing. And I, I do think that that 
gift economy offering is a huge, beautiful one of how much can you give? Again, that potlatch uh, example that I gave up. And also related to this, we also need to know how to ask for what we need, right? In your story, someone said, can I borrow the saw, right? Or can I have some figs? So that's actually necessary for the gift economy and people kind of overlook that component of it. But yeah, I'm really inspired by that kind of, um, that kind of uh, reframe on indebtedness being a positive thing as how we become mutually indebted is how we create community. Yeah, and that's why I, I used the word long term. I like that you uh, spelled it out. I really appreciate that because what I meant by that is exactly what you pointed out, that money's relationship is only while somebody's holding something over me. And then once I pay the debt with money, we're done. I'm never going to talk to you again. That's <laughs> That's it. It's it's almost like if you were in a, a, a wisdom rooted culture, money would be the way that you would insult somebody. Where you'd say, "Okay, look here, take fifty dollars and go away." Yes. Whereas this is this creative way of saying, "Well, what you gave me was worth like probably about five bucks, so I'm going to give you back something worth six or something worth four. And you know that it is, and so you either know you got to give me a little bit more, or you you know that I'm saying, "Well, let's let's go another round." Either way. And we continue this dance. And even I like what you're saying that, of course, we start to get more comfortable with what we need. But there also, I think, starts to be maybe a sensitivity so that I I just show up and say, Della, you know, thanks for the figs. I know you really like bread. I bake some. Yes. Uh, right. And it's, she did uh, that little girl did, too. Right. She didn't have to say, I really need some cake. She was able to say, who doesn't want a slice of chocolate cake? And she comes over. And so it is a way to get to know each other really well, because then we know that um, even though you don't particularly like the figs, you're so thrilled by the little thing that I gave you that for you means more than the whole basket of figs. And that's a nice way to live, isn't it? To know each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we are, 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 that's part of our issue is that we're in a culture of, of uh, a significant level of anonymity and aloneness. That I, the ideal for the culture is that each one of us is by ourselves, up as many hours as possible, sitting and streaming, and then going on Amazon to buy the stuff that the show made us want to get. Right? I mean, it's like yeah. very. Um, it's so weird that that's the American ethos as well, that it fits so well that capitalist drive that we're so afraid of. And, and maybe what could you say um, in response to that? Because so I know there we have because we have such a, a paucity or dearth of public intellectuals who really have some wisdom and who maybe are engaging also that people want to hear them or have been taught how to listen to elders. Then we have people like, uh, say, Jordan Peterson, who is clearly an intelligent guy, and he says lots of things, actually, that have plenty of grounding in data and also in the wisdom traditions. I think some of it's fragmented. It's an example of fragmentary wisdom. But some of the things he says are, you know, they're they're just annoying, but that doesn't mean that they're wrong. But he he does, if we read him charitably, at least have this um, uh, honorable dedication to the sanctity of the individual. And there is, you could say, part of the American uh, propaganda campaign, and maybe it's beyond us too, but, but uh, the propaganda campaign on behalf of capitalism is that it does protect the sanctity of the individual. How would you respond to, you know, how does a post-capitalist world, um, I mean, I obviously don't think there's, there has to be a contradiction here, but we experience one. How, how would you 
respond to somebody like him saying, well, what are you going to have? Some kind of thing where I have to submit to the community. And, you know, then that means the community is, is really exercising a kind of tyranny on me. Yes, I love this question. And I actually know Jordan Peterson, his work, I mean. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, well, how I came to know it is interesting. Uh, to, uh, like, somebody had once sent me this Modiversity video, which is like this whole series of videos that are, or audios that are really empowering. Like, they, they're all about, like, discipline and hard work, and they're really trying to motivate people. And I actually love them, and I go for runs with them quite often because I just find them so energizing. Like, they'll they'll say things like, you know, get up, and, like, when life knocks you down, like, get up, and it's behind all this, like, great, you know, um, strong music and everything, so it's fun. Anyway, I heard Jordan Peterson's voice in it once, and so I was like, oh, that was interesting. What's that about? Um, and actually listened to one of his books. And I was like, this is so fascinating. And so I love the way that you just frame that. The way, the way that I'm viewing this motiversity stuff and Jordan, Jordan Peterson is, again, it's like hustle or hard work or perseverance or dedication. They're not bad attributes on their own. In fact, I think they're quite positive positive attributes that, you know, we can pick ourselves up and have resilience and dedication. For me, it's to what end, like for what purpose. And so much of that motiversity stuff, and I'm really cautioning folks in case they look this up, is so much of about it is like becoming a millionaire or making oneself. That's the part I have to tune out when I'm running or <laughs> listening to, because I find it inspiring and engaging. But for me, I just supplant the, the millionaire speak with like the great turning, you know, with contributing, with giving more. You know, so it's like, what is my locus of control? What is the thing that's most important to me? And also, as I said earlier, what is my sense of self? So, yeah, if I had a very narrow sense of self and it really was about my own personal ambitions, then I would hear it that way. But if I saw it as like, wow, how do we have like a Ubuntu sense of self or, a, you know, ecological sense of self, then that's that's empowering, but in a different way. So it's, I think it's those two questions. And then the other thing this brings up for me that I really appreciate that you're, you're pointing towards is this concept of greed. And I think if I were, if you were to ask me, Della, what's your like number one question that you're chewing on or like, you know, inquiry, I would say human greed. Cause I, I try to say to people all the time as, as actually um, Bhutan and EF Schumacher would that there is a level of sufficiency, there is a contentedness, there is a sense of enoughness. And I draw upon the Kahneman curve, which says that income and happiness are correlated until a certain amount, and then it plateaus, right? And I just have this uh, passion about this contentedness and sufficiency thing. And I even say, we, what if we had a post-profit world where all for-profit businesses paid workers enough and then directed 100% of profits to mission-driven causes. And there were no more pro-profit no pro or profit-oriented businesses. They all went to nonprofits and mission-driven causes. But then every time I do that, people respond to me, but sometimes people say there's never enough or they always want more or that sense of enoughness shifts. And so for me, it's like this, and I see it in my own being, too, of like growth and profit and um, and greed. And I think that's kind of and I know this is one of the, you know, the three poisons in Buddhism. And so that's another reason why I bring this in. But where is that in our 
in our upstream journey? And why is it so tricky or dangerous or difficult? Because if we could address that point, that point of greed, and then I think that would unlock this piece around what is our efforts, our hustle going towards, and also why are we causing such destruction on our planet? I think that one point in itself could be a key leverage point. Wondering what your thoughts are on that, Nikos. Well, you picked the thing, of course, that uh, Buddha chose as one of the places in the link of causes that keep us in suffering, that it was a place we could have good access. It's usually translated as tanha or craving. So he thought, you know, if if you look at the old teachings of uh, the Pali Canon, you see he kind of localizes the problem of suffering in craving. And that's a weird thing in a way, because he, of course, would agree that ignorance is the ultimate diagnosis. And later Buddhist philosophers started to say, well, that's the place. You know, sure, yeah, he was just saying that because, you know, he's trying to get people to just kind of walk off the craving. And he was mostly dealing with young men. I mean, it was almost like part of what he did was ultimately was he ended up demilitarizing like a huge, <laughs> and India wasn't ready for it. And and so consequently, they were invaded afterwards. But there was this massive demilitarization that happened. So you get a bunch of 18-year-old boys, though, right, who are young, ignorant, and horny, and you've got to start to disabuse them of craving because they don't know how to work with their body's energies. They don't know any of that. And in those early days, he was not teaching some kind of tricky yogic stuff, you know, for channeling energies and moving around. He just wanted people to dissolve that. And so that what I love about it, too, is that when in the teachings on sati, mindfulness, it's so beautiful how he says, where, is, where do you liberate the mind? Where, do, is, where is it that this mindfulness unleashes enlightened vision? It's right there in the same eye that was just a second ago looking at that chocolate cake. And seeing it in a different way, seeing it in this kind of, you know, colored, encumbered by craving. So that is so important. And but of course, then you could work on it still in these in these ways, which are like in mindfulness, right? You, I say again and again, a lot of people have been exposed to you. You said make mindfulness. One way to to tell whether it's been make mindfulness is did they have you read Buddha's teaching? Because very often I have discovered people can get certified as mindfulness teachers, no requirement that they read the original guy who was a genius. Whatever else you think, this is a philosophical and psychological genius. And so he, but he talks about working with that bare sensation of when we are drawn towards something, like when something feels good, just to notice how the bare sensation of pain, pleasure, or neutrality itself starts to drive activity. And of course, we see how serious that is because of the way these corporations deliberately preyed on those pathways. They confess, we see it. You can see, if I, I don't know if I have any of it on the website, but they absolutely confess that they were working with addictive pathways as they developed Facebook and all the other social media. They wanted us to be addicted, to have greed, craving, and that the system depends on that because it must, this is another thing Schumacher said, is that wisdom is completely antithetical to our current economy because economics seeks a proliferation of craving and wisdom seeks liberation. And so it's really so good what you're talking about. It's so hard to work with, but that we do need to remember that our experience, it's something starts to take hold. And that's what Marx was saying, too, is that the capitalist is not in charge. You think Elon Musk is trying. No, capital is using him as a vehicle. You know, it's yes, like absolutely. 
that's the, <laughs> that's the problem we face. And so we have to like stop being used and say, I'm done being used. And that maybe is part of the response that you are implying in your lovely thoughts there to Jordan Peterson to say, well, I believe in the sanctity of the individual too, but they have to be liberated from ignorance and craving. Yes. And you, you're not acknowledging, he doesn't acknowledge the way this system stokes those. Yeah. Yeah. Another um, layer to this that comes up, um, which I learned from Ram Das, the six planes of consciousness or six planes of realities where they're all true at the same time. And the, the first is our physical form. So our embodied selves, our physical selves, which is true. You and I sitting here as physical beings. The second are our identities. So race, class, gender, all of those. They are true and they're constructions, social constructions, and they're true, right? They're actual lived stories and experiences. Then he says the third is like our, I, I would say our right livelihood or our calling or our mythopoetic identity, as Bill Plotkin would say. Like it's like our our sense of purpose and like larger sense of contribution and our, you know, that calling self. And then the fourth is meeting human to human, that we are just humans merely, and we we drop the labels and the form and the calling and we just become human to human together. And then the next one is oneness. Like we are all one, right? Spiritual oneness. And then the last one he says is emptiness or nothingness, which he says is really for the Buddhists. And, and he says emptiness is the experience within oneness because oneness is still oneness from two-ness. So I, why I say all that, and that might feel very complex to folks, is that I think Jordan Peterson can get kind of stuck in that maybe that number two and number three reality and realm and not recognize the other realities that are true. And I think also when I work in the realm of right livelihood, there is also a danger of getting stuck in number three in that right livelihood or that calling realm. If we get so fixated on who we are in our contribution, that can become just as egotistical or like savior oriented as say Jordan Peterson's ethos would have us say this very hyper individual focus. So that's why I was saying like, Yes, it is true. It is a reality that we are our larger calling or our, you know, methopoetic identity. And we are our identities and we are our physical form and we are humanness and we are oneness and we are emptiness. And again, the paradox of that and to hold those all together at the same time and be able to shift through them, to cycle through them and not grasp or come become too fixated in only one reality. I don't know if that's a frame that you're familiar with or that you work with at all. No, I think it's really wonderful. And it's nice that he's trying to, Ramdas was trying to acknowledge there this uh, subtle, inconceivable distinction that uh, the Buddhist philosophies uh, embrace as part of enlightenment, that things are not two, but also not one. And it's really easy in some ways especially nowadays, you know, you can drink a cup of ayahuasca and you have the insight that things are not two. But but what these traditions are saying is that this extraordinary being we designate Buddha is a person who impossibly is somehow experienced things as not two, but also not just one. Because the guy can cross the street without getting hit by a car. If you yell his name, hey Buddha, he turns and looks. So, but at the same time, he's somehow not fooled into thinking that really some someone else external to him, some separate thing called to him, and that here are these two separate beings who are now going to interact. So it is an extraordinary state. 
And you're right, it does ultimately liberate you from all the false views that you, you might have because nothing gets around it. That's sort of part of the Buddhist philosophical rigor is that they show, give me a view and we'll show you that it reduces to, to contradiction somehow. And um, so whatever this state is, it is paradoxical. And it's always asking us to let go, to relax. And we use, yes. capitalism gets us to use our anxiety about that. That's part of the Buddhist economist's diagnosis of the cultures to say, look, if you deny death, you deny all the grief you're carrying, you deny all these, your relationship and dependence on nature, you are making yourself schizophrenic. And you're going to have this, this basic discomfort in yourself that nothing can possibly fill. And the culture is going to come around and say, no, but you didn't try this candy bar and you didn't try this car and this thing will fill it. This one will. And it keeps offering you. Or I love also the way Plato did it, which they then, you know, made into a movie is he said, all your craving within the state of ignorance is, is an attempt to eat shadows and think oh. that that will fill you. You can eat shadows all day. You will never nourish yourself on them. And so, or, or the way, you know, in the matrix, right? Whenever I always love that scene, I probably mentioned it in half a dozen podcast episodes, but when, when, whenever the guy who betrays uh, Cypher, he betrays, uh, he's the Judas, right? And he will betray Neo. And he's there in the Matrix and he's eating the steak and he says, tastes like steak to me. And so we, we do our capitalist thing and we say, but look how cool my phone is. <laughs> you, you can't tell me this isn't cool. And we think we have triumphed. And meanwhile, these traditions are saying, yes, no, but you'll always be unhappy. Because that will never fill you. So you do have to get these kind of more expansive views of yourself and what's happening. Yeah, that's wonderful. Hmm. Well, um, let me ask you, do you have any any final thoughts, reflections? I'm so glad that you shared the thing that if you want to know the biggest thing I'm chewing on, that's really great. I'm glad I didn't even have to ask. Is there anything else though that you'd like to share as final reflections? Anything else that you think is interesting about our the state of the world, our potentials? something inspiring, exciting, concerning that you have been aware of? Well, this is, this is quite um, difficult work, but I saw this meme yesterday that said, um, you, you know how there's this phrase, the only way out is through? And, <laughs> and the, 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 the meme was like, can someone invent a way where, like, other than the only way out is through? Like, <laughs> like can we not? And I just thought that was really humorous. And, and I was thinking about, you know, when have I experienced this ultimate uh, dimension or ultimate truth, ultimate, you know, the the sixth plane of consciousness, this emptiness. And because I think that in what we're talking about is the key to freeing ourselves from craving. Um, and that is when when I have experienced deep darkness or depression, we can call it whatever word, and I've gone to the depths of it. And I've only experienced this a handful of time. But when I've really let myself fall to that depth, and that, at least that was the experience for me, I felt a sensation of being held by something at the bottom of it. And that was hugely hopeful to me, hugely liberating to go to the depth of that and to feel a sense of being held. And the only way I can describe that is the, is the ultimate reality. Like the, the, the world beneath all things is there's something, there's something holding us, so to speak. And since that time, I, I do in the mornings, I do a meditation um, of a Vipassana practice where I try to say, where is that ultimate dimension? 
Like, how could I tap into it right now? Where is it? Because it is a remembering, not a reconnecting, as we talked about. So I try to just give myself a taste of it and experience of it so that I can go through the day with a little bit more resourcefulness, resourced, and also resilience, right? So I just wanted to share that because I, I could tell that you know a lot about Buddhist philosophy and thought and practice. And, and again, in this journey that we've been on around economics, Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy really is at the, you know, the inception of my journey. So it's been a, a key thread. And, and it's funny, because folks may not see that when I give talks on alternative economics, but it's, it's always there. And I think that, um, again, to connect us as a renegade economist and a renegade philosopher, that when we look at economics, and we go upstream, and we think about these six realms of consciousness and we reconnect with this widened sense of self in this ultimate dimension that ultimately will lead to this more regenerative and just economic system that we wish to see because we will come back down from that having remembered and having a sense of power with that will lead us to the forms and the structures and the ways of being that are in greater harmony and alignment with the wisdom that, that you're speaking about, that we're speaking about on this show. So I just wanted to weave that in and, and invite you if you had any thoughts on that, that idea that you wanted to share too. Oh, that's marvelous. And I think one of the things that's so marvelous about it is you're talking about <clears throat> Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist philosophy uses the term Dharma and Dharma indicates a few things. It indicates, one, the teachings, but Dharma the et etymology relates to what is held. And the idea is that dharma is a refuge. Why? Because it's the thing that can actually hold us. The only thing that can hold us is reality. And so where do we seek refuge? We'd have to start to seek it in reality rather than, say, in things that people <laughs> offer us externally, which are not really real in an important sense. And so that's marvelous that we begin to discover that there's something that does hold us and that we can seek refuge in it. Mingyur Rinpoche, this wonderful Tibetan teacher, his father was exceptional, exceptional sage, uh, really highly regarded as a deeply realized human being. And so that's a very special kind of father to have, someone that people come from all over the world to, and, and has just this respect. They come from everywhere to, to receive teachings. And so he too was recognized as one of these, you can think of it as a spiritual prodigy if you don't like the idea of rebirth, but he was essentially recognized as someone who has been around a few times. And so then he had a very special education too. That's a deep education that most of us can't fathom from childhood being oriented toward reality and being oriented toward how your mind actually works. So much so that later when he was studied by scientists and put into scanners, he was declared one of the happiest men on the planet, he and another monk. They were declared the happiest people on the planet because their brains were extraordinary. The, the activity that was going on blew the scientists away. They couldn't believe it. And, but he had anxiety as a child and had panic attacks. And how did he overcome them? Well, he wouldn't recommend that people just rush into doing this because it takes some training. You know, you're a, you're a mature person and you've been following a mature path too. So I just want to caution people about this story. But essentially what he finally did one day is he said, all right, well, I'm just going to let the panic come. And what he found was that things that aren't real don't last. 
<laughs> and the the panic just couldn't withstand his refuge seeking in reality. And so he found that we're held. He found the same thing that you found in this intense uh, panic and anxiety. And But it's important, I think, too, to find uh, teachings and find people who you find to, find, to find to be real elders, like you met Joanna Macy, who's a real elder in a culture where we don't know how to produce those, really. Arguably, we don't produce adults regularly, either I say this a million times, too, but it's worth saying. And so then we start to see what's possible for a human being, and we start to heal a little bit so that those experiences of being held can properly take root. Sometimes that experience is uh, dis disarming to a person if they're not ready for it. And then they, instead of feeling held, they just freak out because it's like this mystery is there and no one has prepared them. So it's really good that you can share that it's, no, it's really nice, but you have to do the work to ready yourself for it. But it is this weird paradox, too, that we are reality, and yet something in us is so afraid that if we don't prepare ourselves, it's not so helpful to try to force the, the glimpse at it. But you're living proof that it's very healing once we get ready to do it and we do it. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for your, your thoughts, your reflections, and for the work you do. And I want to encourage people, I'll put in the show notes how to get in touch with you if people would like to think about post-capitalist gestures in their own life and right livelihood, which as a philosopher I wholeheartedly encourage. This is the beginning. And it's also, P.S. to everyone out there, a difference between mic mindfulness or any other kind of uh, spirituality lacking depth is that if you had gone to the Buddha, he wouldn't teach you mindfulness without making sure you had a good life, uh, a good livelihood because he wouldn't want you to use the power of mindfulness to cause more problems for yourself and others, which we can do. So get right livelihood, all of you out there with a spiritual practice, make sure, and you can contact Della for help in doing that. Della, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Nico. It's a pleasure. Pleasure was ours. And thanks to all of you. If you have any questions, stories, comments, reflections to share about money, economy, right livelihood, or any of the things that Della and I touched on today, please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. I might be able to bring some of those into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of it.